You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. Europe is widely considered the birthplace of open banking. In 2015, the European Union passed the Second Payment Services Directive, known as PSD2, introducing the world to the idea that financial data across the entire ecosystem could be securely shared using common open standards with the customer's consent. Although they didn't know it at the time, this idea would lead to a global movement that came to be called open banking. Since then, open banking has been adopted in some form in almost 70 countries. Some choose a market-driven approach, others lead with regulation. Oftentimes, it is a special blend of the two. But however it is done, it is being done. An idea that had once been synonymous with Europe and the UK has gone global, spreading like wildfire to every corner of the globe. In many cases, those who came after Europe have improved upon their first attempt. The UK, a fast follower, introduced a central registry and API compliance. Australia went bold broadening their standard to include multiple sectors. Brazil improved upon both. Europe, meanwhile, became fragmented and balkanized, with some declaring open banking a failure. But the Europeans aren't done just yet. Having learned from their global peers, as well as their own shortcomings, they are gearing up for a major upgrade, one that aims to, once again, inspire the rest of the world. In all, Europe has been on the journey to modernize their financial system for over 20 years. It's been a long road, a road our guest has been on since the beginning. Dr. Ruth Vandhoofer has been instrumental in shaping the future of finance. She operates at the nexus of finance, technology, and regulation, and has firmly positioned herself as one of the leading experts shaping the digital financial ecosystem. After spending over a decade at Citibank driving regulatory and industry dialogue, she joined the boards of the London Stock Exchange, the LSE Group, Digital Identity Net, Aquis Exchange Group, PTSB, and RTGS Global, as well as advising top-tier consultancies and fintech VCs. Today, Ruth is the chair of the Payment System Regulator Statutory Panel in the UK and a strategic advisor to the European Third-Party Provider Association. Ruth has been recognized as a top 10 global influencer by the FinTech Power 50 and a senior leader on the Women in FinTech Power list from Innovate Finance. She is a widely sought-after speaker, writer, and professor, and her opinions have been published in Sifted, The Financial Times, and Forbes. Ruth has published three books, 
EU payments integration in 2010, transaction banking and the impact of regulatory change in 2014, and most recently, in 2023, re-decentralization, building our digital financial ecosystem. Ruth, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a bit of a history lesson. The origin of open banking in Europe, and arguably the world, is often linked to the Revised Payment Services Directive of 2015, known as PSD2. But you were actually involved long before that, going back to the original PSD and even earlier. Tell us, how did it all begin? It's a very long story. I joined the European Commission on a traineeship in 2003, completely by accident. And as I stayed in Brussels and it was a sunny summer, I decided to stay on. And it very clearly transpired that the industry was going to take action around payments in Europe because we had the introduction of the euro. But what we didn't have was a unified payment system for euro payments across the whole of the single market. Well, the thinking already in 2003 was we need to set up an industry body to govern payments at European level, which became the European Payments Council. And of course, at the European Union policy level, we need to set out some rules that harmonize how users can make and receive payments across the single market in euro. And all of that amalgamated together became then the first payment services directive. So that's how early I was involved. It was completely by accident. And I actually had the pleasure to guide the European banking industry through the policy negotiation process. So I was the lead negotiator for all European banks on the first payment service directive, which was finally adopted after years of negotiation in 2007. At the same time, I worked with the European Payments Council to create consensus on rule books that would govern SEPA payments, single euro area payments. These were the early days of harmonization of euro transactions because, of course, the European Commission didn't only want to harmonize rules to protect consumers, but they also wanted to create more competition in payments. Until that point, only banks were able to offer payment services. So PBSD1 already brought in the concept of payment institutions that could offer payment services regulating providers in the payment space that until that point had not been captured at all by any regulatory standards. You've described the original PSD, as you said, passed in 2007, as, quote, opening the floodgates of fintech innovation. What do you mean by that? So the whole reason for PSD, apart from harmonization of rules to allow SEPA to flourish, was indeed to create more competition. And we were at a point in 2007, it takes, of course, up to two years to implement those laws in member state legislation. So by 2009, we were ending at the deadline of implementation, which also happened to coincide with the financial crisis being in full bloom. And so the combination of the opening up of the market for non-bank institutions to compete in payments Harmonized conduct rules for every payment provider, including banks and existing e-money institutions, combined with the financial crisis where there was an evident lack of trust in the banking industry 
and, of course, crucially, the advances of technology that had happened in the meantime, where we've seen new fintech entrepreneurs coming to the fore, leveraging the possibilities of the regulatory opening up, combining it with technology and trying to address some real problems, such as the high fees of cross-border payments, the lack of transparency, the user interfaces that weren't great at banks at the time. All of those amalgamated together, it really opened up the floodgates of fintech, and it started all with payments. And that subsequently led to the rise of what are today called neobanks. You've called those glorified payment companies. Why? Yeah, so in many instances, neobanks were payment institutions, sometimes e-money institutions, but they would call themselves banks, which of course can be a little bit misleading because banks are called banks because they're subject to credit requirements directive in Europe, they're subject to banking legislation, and banks most importantly are allowed to take deposits of customers and to lend them out. In fact, they are the credit creation engine of the economy. If you leave money with a bank, you are, of course, insured by deposit insurance. That's guaranteed in most developed countries. It's a safe place to put your money. If you put your money with a neobank, it's really for purposes of transactions only. What we saw in those days is that some banks came out as neobanks issuing, for example, cards. So you would get a credit card or debit card, but you would actually have to fund cards often initially. So it would often be more of a prepaid card. People may have thought these are banks, but actually they were payment providers. So they're not allowed to take deposits, which also means they can't lend any money in the sort of bigger scheme of things. They can't provide huge loans or mortgage offerings because they don't have the deposit base. And that tells you the difference between uh, banking regulation and being a true bank versus either an e-money or payment institution. Fast forward to 2013, and the European Commission proposes PSD2, the second payment services directive. You've said that PSD2 is the, quote, child of the financial crisis. Why is that? So PSD1 already showed the first green shoots of financial crisis outcome. You had more institutions that decided to set up in order to compete with banks. Users might sometimes be more open to work with non-bank providers because they had lost trust in banks. And PSD2 was a second step on that journey. The rise of e-commerce, that's probably the biggest building stone for PSD2. And that is because we'd seen in those years a lot more online e-commerce. We have seen a lot more merchants interested in being able to sell their goods online. And of course, until that point, how merchants would be paid online was solely with credit cards. And that was really quite expensive for merchants. It started very early 2010-11 already when PSD1 was in play that one provider in Germany decided to create a clever solution, helping merchants to receive money online in a semi-almost guaranteed form without needing to go through the card systems. And that provision was done in a way that the merchant would implement a checkout button on their website and you would click that button and you would be redirected and you would be asked to share your online banking access credentials. In American terms, you would now call this screen scraping 
because you're using somebody's access credentials to actually go into their system. And it was impossible for banks to identify whether that was somebody else or not. But of course, the outcome was that the transaction was initiated, there was enough money, and the merchant would receive the payment, and it would be costing the merchant a fraction of what it costs to accept a credit card transaction. Because this was starting to take off as an activity that was until that point unregulated, the representative from that firm actually joined the whole lobby discussion around PSD2 and said, we want to be legitimized. We are a business that currently runs outside the regulatory fold, And we would like to now be recognized as a legitimate payment institution. That's how you got into this sort of third party role of payment initiation and account information service providers that then found its way through PSD2. You mentioned screen scraping. You had a ringside seat as open banking standards began to change screen scraping into APIs. How did that happen exactly? The banking industry was very concerned as this type of service came to the fore as something that became very successful in Germany, but then also in countries around Germany, Austria, Luxembourg, etc. So there were more and more countries adopting the solution. And at Brussels, these providers were pushing to be regulated and legitimized. And the banks were concerned because they really didn't like screen scraping because they felt that they had absolutely no ability to manage the security. The bank said these providers should not use screen scraping. We should start to leverage a different technology to allow for data access and data sharing. Why don't we use APIs? And these third parties can use an API to access our bank. So this is how the conversation came through in PSD2. Then, of course, in implementation, it was all hinging around the interfaces. And there was no API standard at European level. But we saw certain bodies such as the Berlin Group bringing very different stakeholders together to come up with what we could call the European standard for APIs. The big challenge here is this standard is not being enforced. So we don't have conformancy testing. We don't have certification. And that is quite different to the UK approach, which has actually also added these elements and therefore is policing the standard implementation in a very rigorous manner. So strictly speaking, the term open banking originated in the UK, not in Europe. Is that right? Yeah. It really was something that was more formalized as a term in the UK. And we would always say Europe was PSD2, UK was open banking. Today, open banking initiatives have emerged all over the world. Europe, once a pioneer, is working to maintain its lead. Which brings us to PSD3. What can we expect to see with PSD3? PSD3 is no longer the right term because PSD1 and PSD2 included the prudential regime for payment institutions, which were the new players on board. PSD2 actually expanded those payment institutions with the terms of payment third-party providers, which are allowed to do these specific initiation and account information services. And then the second part of PSD1 and 2 were always covering the conduct of business rules and standards for all banks, EMA institutions, and payment institutions. So harmonized rules 
on transparency, on execution, operational things, information flow, charging. The European Commission has actually finally put something into play that I've been pushing for probably now for 20 years. It's merging the e-money directive with the payment services directive. And most importantly, this PSD3 is actually integrating a term of payment institutions that now applies for every provider. When it comes to the more important piece, which are the conduct of business rules that apply to all payment service providers, which is what part two of PSD1 and 2 has always been, this is now called the payment services regulation. And as I said 20 years ago, I already pushed not only for the merger of the e-money to payment institution regime, but also the most important piece is to have much more standardized rules. Regulation at European level has to be written in law exactly as it is written at European level, which means it's a much more harmonized regime. Until now, we had directives. Directives are implemented into national legislation, which often ends up with lots of interpretations, add-ons, and many of the regimes might look quite different from another. So the attempt is more truly harmonize the conduct of business for all of those providers, which is to be applauded. And this is why it's going to be done under the payment services regulation. Now, when it comes to what's in there, which is really the heart of what we're talking about, one key part of it relates to improving how European banks are actually implementing their APIs. The problem we've seen because of the lack of true enforcement of, for example, the Berlin standard and the lack of a truly agreed pan-European API standard for that purpose has been really that some fintechs acting as third-party providers trying to offer a service of account information or payment initiation online have really suffered from the bank's APIs being low quality, sometimes not including some of the crucial data points that will have to be in the API, and sometimes even have downtimes. So we've actually seen in some markets some real issues. There would be no opportunity for third parties to actually perform their service consistently. Investors invested in those fintechs thinking they can make them grow. But if the banks don't play to the rules and if the rules are not clear enough and not enforced, you ultimately had a failure of a number of fintechs in that area because they just couldn't perform their service. So PSR, Payment Systems Regulation now, is looking at that aspect. Another area that will be quite interesting in terms of the whole consent and data sharing approach under open banking is that banks will be required to offer an online portal where their users can manage consent they've given to third parties for purposes of open banking data sharing. Over time, as open banking morphs into open finance and open data, banks could potentially also offer other information that they might have consented to share data with a healthcare provider, etc., And that could be a future-oriented benefit uh, going forward. If PSD1 opened the floodgates of fintech innovation and PSD2 was the child of the financial crisis, what is the tagline for PSD3? I would love to say enabling fintech, but at the same time, I'm a little bit on the fence because we've seen the role of the European Banking Authority under PSD2 
it is a banking authority and that authority hasn't been very explicitly also keeping fintechs within their folds. We would love to see PSR and PSD3 to be the future of fintech and payments, but I'm a bit on the fence. So I would hope to say PSR is enabling further fintech growth. A recap. PSD1, introduced in 2007, opened the floodgates of fintech in Europe. The first payment services directive recognized payment providers as legitimate, bringing them into the regulatory fold. This led to the rise of neobanks. And although they couldn't take deposits or issue loans, they nevertheless took a big bite out of the market showing incumbents that fintech was the real deal. In 2015, the EU passed PSD2, the child of the 2008 Great Financial Crisis. Trust in banks was at an all-time low, and people were eager to work with fintechs to manage their money. When those fintechs started using customer credentials to screen-scrape bank portals, with the customer's consent, no less, the banks were not thrilled. But the demand from customers was real, and the fintechs were more than ready to do it the right way. So, the second payment services directive replaced screen scraping with consent-driven APIs and introduced special roles for those initiating payments and sharing data. European Open Banking was born. Earlier this year, the EU published its draft proposal for PSD3, the third payment services directive, as well as its more ambitious doppelganger, PSR, the payment services regulation. The former, PSD3, will help harmonize payment institutions, but the real changes come with PSR. A directive is implemented differently in each country, but a regulation is the same for all of Europe, which means better standardization, better APIs, and better open banking for 27 countries all at once. Done correctly, PSR could be the key to unifying Europe's open banking efforts, but open banking is only part of the digital finance puzzle. No doubt we are witnessing the building of this new digital financial infrastructure. In parallel with open banking, the past few years have seen the emergence of a whole new approach to building this infrastructure, a topic you touch on quite a bit. Web3 and its cousin DeFi. How do you see these new technologies being incorporated into the system. Is DeFi going to replace all this old infrastructure and overrun open banking efforts, or will the two merge? This is a bit of a hornet's nest, isn't it? 
what I find particularly with Web3, we're not really clear who's building Web3. If you Google to find companies involved in Web3 initiatives, you will certainly find the biggest, largest global data and tech firms involved with market caps in their billions. And these are all very large, I call them in my last book, digital states. They have an interest in obtaining customer data. They have an interest in pitching things, everything we see in our own applications today in terms of the algorithms that direct us to buy certain things, to get involved with certain stuff, comes from all these big digital states. And the Web3 approach, when we think about the origins, was always about providing a more decentralized web where the individual is more in control of their own identity and their data and can choose to share the data and to potentially even commercialize their data. I'm not so hopeful at this stage that Web3 is going to be truly decentralized with the human at the center. As soon as something's centralized, it's usually run by these big corporations. And I'm just not sure that we get to a decentralized human benefiting outcome because I see a lack of transparency as to who's involved in those initiatives. Decentralization is all about not one individual or business is deciding whether somebody can access a system or leave a system and what they can do within a system. And the applications that we've seen on DeFi are in some instances not necessarily decentralized at all. It tend to be certain businesses running platforms with maybe distributed ledger technology, which is more about distributing code and maybe creating technological resilience against hacks. But as soon as you have very strict rules or any rules for who can enter the system, who can exit the system, you have to ask who is setting those rules. So you will encounter very quickly that a lot of the DeFi stuff is not decentralized at all, but maybe using some distributed technologies. So I think we're still on the path of demystifying some of it. What I feel is that we become too concentrated and too centralized with tech providers, with the data they're holding on us, which leaves us at the mercy of these providers, intentionally or unintentionally. Today, technologies are not used to empower humans and communities, but they're unfortunately used to just empower centralized control. Let's talk about why you use the term re-decentralization instead of just decentralization. It is, of course, due to the fact that the world used to be more decentralized. We used to work more in communities. We had the sovereignty concept with the Westphalian Peace Treaty in 1639, which created borders and rule of law and kings and queens and things like that. But the whole point is that this has come to an extreme with nation states. But now my premise is that nation states are themselves no longer in control because it's the big digital states that are in control. And these are virtual. They're everywhere. They listen to you. My iPhone probably listens to what I'm just telling you right now. And that is more concerning because that sort of gives you a bit of a matrix flavor, right? At the moment, we're governed by invisible global systems by virtue of having the internet and having all these devices. We're no longer governed by our own senses. If you take the metaverse just to top it all, 
if you're sitting with VR glasses in a virtual reality, you may not even know where you are any longer and you lose time. You're no longer in control of your own senses and your own personal agency because these systems are all designed to distract and control you. And that's why we need to re-decentralize. What's fascinating is this is playing out in very literal terms on the technology side. We talked about DeFi, which is decentralized, at least in spirit, perhaps not in practice. But then on the other side, you've got things like CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which are ostensibly very centralized. Do you see those as two sides of the same coin, and how do they relate to your notion of re-decentralization? Yes, so talk about CBDCs. This is clearly a reaction to things that were out of governments and central banks' control, things like the arrival of Bitcoin, which is an internet code that you can join or leave at will, and nobody can really govern or regulate that code. It's something you can't capture because it's very ephemeral. It's in the ether, so to speak. So you have these things coming along, which already scared central banks at the time. Then you had initiatives like Libra, where you had global corporations with scalable client base saying, we can issue our own crypto money and we can use that within our systems as a sort of token intragroup, like a closed loop system. And that would have removed a lot of potential flow from visibility of central banks and payment systems because you would have converted fiat currency into a Libra coin and you would have just transacted within the system because everybody buys at Amazon, everybody rides on an Uber, everybody maybe pays via MasterCard, but you could have even used that via that system, which is, of course, why it was shut down. Regulators could shut it down because it was a very identifiable group of large corporations, and you could just tell them, you are not allowed to do it. Now, next thing that happens, of course, or rather in parallel, is that China launched its CBDC pilots in the millions, so much more large scale. It is incredibly centralized. It is another way of digital money that allows China to control flows. It's not actually been adopted that successfully because there are very good commercial alternatives with Alibaba and Tencent. But of course, these businesses also are directly connected to the Chinese central bank, so it's all within the government's control there. The combination of private crypto, some scares around private businesses trying to get up together and doing their own thing, plus China saying we're going to do something digital with our currency, really created this sort of formal <laughs> of central banks that said we need to do something. Central banks feel that in order to be more in control of the digital emerging ecosystem, they need to act and create central bank digital currency as a way to also be part of that digital ecosystem. Now, it's as you say, it is going to be completely centralized. Interestingly, both central banks have said on the side, we're not going to use a distributed ledger for this. It's going to be a centralized ledger. So if you think about the sort of innovation itself, it's definitely not going to be an innovation of the nature of the ledger. These are attempts to centralize further because they feel they are no longer in control of more decentralized money opportunities out there. But the proof will be in the pudding. 
frankly, if you think about competition, we talked about PSD1, PSD2, and the payment services regulation. For the last 20 years, the European Union, including the UK, have been pushing for more competition, to see more innovation in payments, to see non-bank providers coming to the fore and playing a role in the payment value chain. If a central bank comes in and issues CBDC via the banks onto a digital wallet that changes their commercial money from a Deutsche Bank into a CBDC wallet and it becomes central bank digital money, where's the role for a third-party payment provider? Where's the role for an e-money issuer? None of this has, has any more role. And of course, the payment business of banks is also going to be challenged. You could have a situation where I use my digital sterling wallet for all my day-to-day -day payments and even throughout the months. I've got my CBDC in there. And then everything else that I don't want to use, I put into a savings account. So in an extreme case, you could completely cut out payments as a service from banks, email institutions, and payment institutions because there's no need for that complexity. So we will see where this is going, but certainly the ECB is quite decided and has officially now declared that they will continue working on this. I will work with them and they will go into that next phase of looking at how to design a pilot and technical specification. Let's step back to the more philosophical side. In the closing chapter of your book, you introduce the idea of a digital social contract. Why? What makes this idea so important to the success of re-decentralization? If you reflect on our social contract, which we had for hundreds of years, which really says, I as an individual will not use any violence. I will be subject to the rules of my land. And in return for this obedience, my country will protect me, will give me an identity, will give me certain benefits and protection. And that is really the nature of a social contract. Going forward and already where we are today, we do see that countries have lost control. The countries are no longer necessarily able to protect us. And everybody is really living in this digital ecosystem. The time people spend on digital devices with information that might not be true is just increasing day by day. And the metaverse is just in its infancy. And so my point is, in this new digital world, those people that are building Web3, that are trying to reap the commercial benefits of that centralized control, will need some counterbalancing and will need to be open for a digital social contract. There needs to be some agreement. What do I give as a user and what do I get as a return? It's about giving the user more control in these digital platforms, which until today are governed in a clear one-way structure. That is the essence of the digital social contract, which goes into various examples of sharing, consensus, community sense. And that is where I feel we need to work a lot more to think about how we embed the human into the future of a Web3, of a metaverse, of a DeFi. Where is the role of the human this can't just be a world which is dominated by centralized business powers, but the human falls by the wayside. As we near the end, 
of our discussion. Let's explore how things could go wrong and how they could go right. Let's start with the pessimistic view. Is there a risk that all these new digital finance technologies could actually make things worse? Yeah, I think my concern is that many solutions out there are not helping financial health. There are more and more coming to the fore. Financial health is the key point to look out for because that empowers the human. And I think many people are not yet on top of their financial health. We've seen a lot more card borrowing going on. We don't see the right type of warnings. And I think there is value in fintech, which we've seen already with account information services, to provide you with an overview of your spending, where you could maybe obtain the same service cheaper somewhere else, using those platforms as opportunities to provide better value to the actual individual. That logic of a digital social contract in a way to protect the user. So I think that's where it should go, where it's not necessarily going yet. If you take it a notch up around the whole Web3 and Metaverse, it's a very bifurcated discussion. You need super fast internet. You need incredibly expensive gear. You need to spend a lot of money to be engaging with the Metaverse. This is not about providing access to education and information and interaction and learning for everybody. This is reserved for the rich. And that in itself is a problem. If you then look at the environment, the amounts of rare earth metals we're digging out, ruining landscapes and whole countries in order to have our latest iPhone, our next generation metaverse headset, is so irresponsible. We need to rethink how we use our resources more intelligently. And by pushing for these things to go and accelerate further and by pushing for economic growth at all costs, we're going to be even faster at ruining our environment, which we see at a daily level already. Despite these considerable risks, you remain a passionate champion of the future of digital finance. Why such optimism? Digitization can bring value. You can do good things with data. You can find out what is needed. You can use it as a tool to engage with individuals and communities much faster. The digital ecosystem provides all the opportunities to actually make things rapid, engaging, transparent. One thing that we're clearly seeing by virtue of a combination of technology and regulation and enforcement is that things are becoming more transparent. Fees that used to be intransparent for years are now becoming transparent. People are able to shop around. This is becoming more mainstream. We see even older generations switching accounts, switching providers, using maybe a specific fintech for a cross-border, using a neobank for foreign exchange. We're having really positive signs that we are on the right track. But what we need to make sure is that the very big players are focusing at the right things with the human in mind and not only with the shareholder value in mind. And that is a cultural shift that is very difficult to obtain. And this is why empowering everybody, all of us, to understand what's happening 
basically waking us up out of the matrix, taking the red pill and saying, what is really happening here? We've got the choice individually to wake up or not. My hope is that we will wake up. Things are changing quite rapidly. And I just hope that the large, big digital states that are de facto governing us are in tune with that requirement because this will create a better outcome for every user. It will make things more inclusive, but it'll also, of course, ultimately provide more value in the right channels. If the earth is going to go down too quickly, then, of course, nobody can make either money or provide a good service. And that's what gets you out of bed every morning is making sure that the digital financial technologies we put in place steer us in the right direction. Yes. Where can our guests find out more about you and the work you're doing? Well, it was a real pleasure, Eyal. And to get in contact with me, you can either go on the internet, www.ruth-vandhofer, that would be W-A-N-D-H-O-F-E-R.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, or you can even send me an email which is ruth at ruthvandhofer.com, again, with a hyphen in the middle. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Even in the early days, the Europeans understood that open banking was not just about sending money and sharing account information. It was about a fundamental question. Who owns your data? After the great financial crisis and the harsh austerity measures that followed, they debated this question in the European Parliament, often with raised voices. The banks were no longer revered as bastions of safety and soundness, no longer considered fair, no longer trusted. So many in Europe questioned their right to hold and manage data. The data, they said, belonged to the customer. Your data belongs to you. This was the big idea, the match that lit the flame. Once the question of data ownership was brought into the open, one can't help but notice that banks aren't the only ones with data about us. In fact, most of our data isn't with banks at all. Most of it is kept in highly centralized places, controlled and used in hidden ways by some of the largest, most opaque companies in existence. Thanks to Europe and champions like Ruth, Open banking began to shine a light on these hidden places and to raise the volume on these quiet questions. As Europe explores the next phase of its open banking journey, Ruth believes that it's time to aim at a bigger target. She argues that we must revisit the fundamental relationship we have with all our technology providers to form a new relationship that puts humans and society at the center. A digital social contract. From the start, that's where the arrow of open banking 
has always been pointing. Towards a future where our digital destiny is our own. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode of Mr. Open Banking was made possible by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. To learn more, visit radium.com.